Hi, and welcome to the Literati Cast. I'm Jennifer Loughran. This show is going to be so packed with goodness, I'm actually skipping my usual intro so I can get right into it. My guest today is a YA author. Her new book is The Gentleman's Guide to Vice and Virtue. It follows the exploits of a playboy who drinks and sleeps his way across Europe with his best friend, who he also just happens to be in love with. It is a laugh-out-loud funny big gay romp that reminds me of Brideshead Revisited meets The Hangover, and I'm so excited to chat with its author, Mackenzie Lee. Can you just kind of give us a overview of your path to publication? Oh my gosh, yeah. It's like my whole life is my path to publication. Um, I was a writer when I was like eight or nine years old in the way everybody is a writer when they're eight or nine years old. Um, I really like to read, but I look back now and I don't think I was a very good reader. Um, I got really scared off by books that were um, too challenging for me or too voicey. I like to read the same books over and over again. I did a lot of audiobooks and mostly I read Star Wars novelizations. Those were like super my jam when I was, when I was 10 years old, Um, which is not to say there's anything wrong with any of that, but I don't think I was a very good reader. Um, so when I was sort of like required to graduate out of middle grade books into young adult, wasn't really a thing. So adult books, um, I kind of stopped reading and then going along with that, I I stopped writing too. Um, and didn't come back to it until I was in college. I did a, I, I did a history, history degree. Um, I did a year abroad while I was um, working on the degree so that I could, um, do research for my thesis. And while I was abroad, I was traveling a lot and I was like, what do people do in airports and bus stations and things like that? Um, and started reading again and it was fine. And then I started, uh, reading books from my childhood again. I found a secondhand copy of the goose girl by Shannon Hale in like a bookstore in, in the UK and started reading that. And I was like, oh my gosh, like this is what books used to be. They used to be so fun and wonderful. And so I started reading all these, um, children's books again from, from when I was a young person. And then from there kind of funneled into, to reading young adult. And at the same time had a professor tell me, that my uh, history papers read like novels and <laughs> I was not allowed to say things like Richard the third was really angry or like write dialogue <laughs> for Henry the fifth. And so I decided maybe I needed to look into a different kind of writing. Mm. And so I got back to, to the States and finished my thesis and was reading a lot of children's books and then just kind of started writing again. I moved to Boston. I did an MFA at Simmons and wrote a bunch of books that didn't get anywhere, um, wrote a book that got me an agent that also didn't get anywhere, and then uh, wrote a book as part of my thesis for my MFA, um, which ended up being This Monstrous Thing, which is my first book. You're a bookseller too, right? Yeah, I am. So I have a theory, and I don't know, maybe it's just a lie, but my theory is that booksellers are kind of in a unique position in the book industry because they can see things from both a publisher kind of behind the scenes way and also from a reader consumer point of view they're really in both worlds and i think that a lot of times people in at publishing houses don't know what actual humans on the ground are gravitating towards and that kind of thing do you think that that's true yeah i think that's absolutely correct um especially i think in children's and young adult books um as a writer i of those books i work with only adults on these books. I talked to my agent who is an adult, my editor, my publicist, my whole publishing team are all adults. And then to go into the bookstore and have teenagers and young people coming up to me and telling me what they're excited about and what they're reading and seeing what they're picking up, it, it totally changes your perspective on things. 
Yeah, I I feel the same as an agent actually. Like I think it just that we're being able to wear that hat is really helpful. It's it's helpful to remember too that at the end of producing these books, you have readers. Like you talk to readers like online when you're an author, but as a bookseller, you talk to them every day and you talk to people who are excited about books and you see that really there is there is a book for every reader, I guess, um, and a reader for every book. And yeah, it just, it really brings back the the human side to it that I think you kind of miss in publishing when everything is numbers and everything is, is money and your art is sort of commodified. Right. Um, was there anything unexpected, something you know now, now that you have a couple of books out that would have really surprised you a few years ago or before you started? Oh gosh, everything. <laughs> it's all, publishing was such a different beast than writing. Um, and being an author is so different than being a writer for me. Um, I think just the fact that it is so different would really surprise me. Um, and also just that it it's, it's the sort of thing where when you're standing on the sidelines, it's really easy. And even when I'm like sort of between books or between projects and not in the thick of promotion, it's really easy to look at things and say like, oh, it, it doesn't like to not compare yourself and say like, this doesn't matter I understand that it's a business. I understand that um, my book is a, a product for somebody. I'm not going to compare myself. I'm just going to be happy about the little milestones. And then you, as soon as you see somebody else's book get something, you're like, nope, not happy with my milestones anymore. I want that milestone. <laughs> um, so I would say like, it, it definitely brought out my inner competitiveness in a way that I'm still, and probably for the rest of my life, will be trying to manage. Um yeah, it just, I don't know, publishing was my, my first year after getting a book deal was really, really tough on me. Um, and I, I dealt with like pretty severe depression in a way that I hadn't um, ever before in my life. Sorry, this got really heavy all of a sudden. I don't know. I, um, I mean, I think a lot of people can relate to that and it's good to hear somebody say it. Yeah, I, I mean, I've talked to a lot of writers who who have said the same thing, that it's just, it's such a huge shift in perspective in, in the way, I think too, it's the idea of before as a writer, you're always sort of writing what you love and then you kind of throw it out there and see if it sticks. And so as soon as you you get a book deal, suddenly you have an agent on board, you have an editor, you have a, a publishing team, um, or even just you have people who read your books and have expectations. And it's just, it was, even though my first book was, was a very, very small book relatively, um, I just felt like the tremendous weight of expectation um, in a way that I really didn't expect to. Well, and I think that so many times people think, you know, when they're in their MFA program or they're toiling away in their garret or whatever, <laughs> that their goal is, I'm going to get published, I'm going to be a New York Times bestseller or whatever. And so they think, oh, I've got a contract, now everything is great. Right. But it's just not, not. Like, yeah. <laughs> I, I if anything, doing, you have more problems. Yeah, I kept doing the thing too, where I would say, as soon as I get an agent, I'm going to feel like a real writer, or I'm going to feel valid, or I'm going to feel successful. And then you get an agent, and you're like, nope, that wasn't enough. I got to get a book deal. And then you get a book deal, and you're like, nope, not enough. Got to get whatever the <laughs> next sort of arbitrary benchmark is. And your metric for success reconfigures sort of the higher you climb. And so you never end up feeling, that was my experience anyway, I never end up feeling successful or I never I never feel like I like I've I'm there or like I've reached a goal because you're always looking to the next thing which is great because it keeps you ambitious and it keeps you hungry but it can also be really like damaging to your psyche I think but speaking of milestones I mean gentleman's guide <laughs> has done really well it's you've had a couple a, of those milestones yeah yeah I mean you've had amazing reviews five starred reviews in trade yeah. publications 
tremendous word of mouth. You were a number one indie next pick, and you debuted on the New York Times bestseller list. So that's some milestones. Yeah, it's been a few, a few good things. <laughs> Did you do a pre-order campaign or anything like that? Like, was there anything you attribute this out of the gate success with, or just luck? I think it's always a combination of of hustling and luck. Um, this was not a book in, I mean, I, I've had great support from my publisher on this book. Um, they've been so wonderful to work with. Um, but this was not like a lead title for, for Harper. Um, they didn't throw a ton of money behind it. I knew from the beginning that this was not going to be a book they were throwing a ton of money behind. And so I just decided I was going to, I was going to hustle for it. Um, so when we had a manuscript, I started contacting, I, because I'm a indie bookseller, like I know that I, I guess I didn't realize the power of booksellers until I started working in a bookstore. Um, and I realized like, that's really, if you can't get into like Target and Walmart, which is such like a, a an exclusive club that your publisher really has to pick you for, I wanted to get in with indies and I have this great connection that I am an indie bookseller. So that was sort of a, like a great way to, to open the door. Um, but also I always, I always use this example. The first bookstore I ever worked at, um, my like favorite book in the world is Codename Verity by Elizabeth Ween. And the first, um, when, so when I started working at this first bookstore, um, they'd sold three copies of Codename Verity in its entire lifetime. It had been out for like a year and a half at that point. Mm-hmm. Um, and my first month at the bookstore, I sold 40 copies. Um, and so it just, I always think about that as like proof that, that booksellers hand selling books to people and putting books they're excited about on displays and sort of pushing them on their customers you you can't underestimate the power I think of oh, of the indie bookseller. Um, so I decided I really wanted to to get in with indies. I had a great connection, so I just started like pitching myself to to indie booksellers that I either knew or had sort of friend of a friend with, and just getting the manuscript out. And again, Harper was really good about when I was like, "Hey, can I have X number of bound manuscript copies to just send to random people?" They were like, "Yeah, that's great." <laughs> um, so they were very supportive of all my sort of efforts. Um, and just sort of meeting people and talking to people and forming relationships with people that is not based around, I am an author with a book. And so I'm at some point going to ask a favor of you, but really just like connecting with people um, on a shared love of books and shared love of bookstores. That's something that regular authors who are not booksellers can do with their local bookstores too. I mean, I feel like yeah, so many of the books that we recommend, you know, we've met the author, the authors come in and said, hello, like, the author talk is cool on Twitter or, um, yeah, or well, asks for book yeah, recommendations. That's a, a large part of the reason I pick up a lot of books is because the author seems cool or, yeah, the author has come into the store or we had an event. There's a hundred reasons why. Um, but really, I think part of it is finding a way to do that without feeling like you're, you're without <laughs> – it's, it's a really tricky line because you don't want booksellers to feel like you're only doing this because you're inevitably going to want something from them. Um, you want to form like real relationships with people. And I think that's tricky. And as a bookseller, I can always tell when authors are sort of like schmoozing up to us just because they know that one day they're going to ask us for an event or they're going to ask us to like do a pre-order campaign or something. Um, so as best you can, like the best thing to do is really to form real relationships beyond the like mutual benefit of bookseller and author friendship. I had a lot of booksellers that, that got behind this book and, did things like nominating it for Indie Next. Um, I had a lot of luck just in terms of who reviewed the book um, because like trade reviews are are great and I I don't sort of discount any of those five stars. They all mean so much to me. 
but I understand that I was tremendously lucky to get readers for this book who understood what I was doing with it. Um, especially with, with the narrator of the book is kind of not abrasive, but he's a very, like, he either really wins people over or people really, really can't stand him. <laughs> and he's, he's polarizing. That's more the, the way to say it. Um, but he's polarizing with like a lot of intention behind it. And so I was, I was lucky that I, I got reviewers who understood the, the polarizing nature of his character and sort of why it was in place and were able to look into his like marshmallow interior. <laughs> so uh, I think that that's, I mean, that's one thing about this book is that, you know, it's described by me and, and others as a over the top big gay romp. Uh-huh. Um, were you concerned at all that you might not be able to go there in terms of your main character's fluid sexuality, rampant bad behavior, general roguishness? <laughs> uh, did that concern, like, were you ever worried about any of that? Yes. Um, I actually started writing this book when I, so when I, I signed my, my first book deal for this monstrous thing, it was for this monstrous thing plus untitled book two. Which I quickly learned is like the greatest blessing and also the greatest curse because it's so, it feels so backwards to be writing a book under contract like that. Um, when you sort of have this open end, but you still have everybody involved. You have a publisher, you have an editor, um, you have an agent. And so I was slaving away on this other book that I should have known much earlier than I did that it was just not working out. And it was a very ill fated book. Um, and I was, like prying three word sentences out of myself. And it was just so painful. And I was so miserable working on this book. And so I decided to um, prove to myself that writing could be fun by working on something that was just for me. Um, and so I started working on the side on this um, ridiculous adventure novel. I really, really love anything like sort of old school historical adventure, um, whether it's a book or a movie, like that's very much my my aesthetic, if you will. Um, so I started working on this like side project, sincerely thinking I would be the only one who would ever read it, which is why scenes like the streaking through Versailles scene ended up in the book. I was like, my rule, I was like, nothing is too ridiculous. There's no joke that's too weird. I just want you to write like everything you love in one book. And why it also like, just like wraps its arms around every adventure novel trope. Um, and why it's sort of like gleefully anachronistic in points. Um, and so I was working on this sort of on the side when I hit my sort of critical point with the other ill-fated book that I was like, I either have to like redo this from the ground up or I got to bail. Um, and I chose to bail. And this was sort of the only other thing I had going at the time. So I sort of tentatively threw it out to my agent and was like, I got this thing. I don't know if this is anything. And she was really great about um, pushing me to to sort of see if that could, if it could be be my second book. And it ended up obviously, spoiler alert, ended up being the second book. Um, but so I was lucky that I wrote a lot of it thinking nobody was ever going to read it. And I wrote a lot of it in a vacuum, which is why I think it turned out kind of the way it did. Um, that so much of it just feels like it, it felt like a book for me. Um, and so I wasn't worried so much about uh, Monty's abrasiveness when I was working on it. Um, I definitely was once... Um, I, I try not to read like Goodreads or Amazon reviews or anything, but once sort of like tentative early reviews were coming in, not trade reviews, I was like, oh, this is shocking to me that people don't like this character because he is like, he is so close to my heart. And also like in the least flattering thing I can say about myself, like he is so similar to me. Um, <laughs> and so <laughs> it's a little bit, it's just a little bit like getting judged by your readers when you're like, here's the character that's most like me. And they're like, oh, he's the worst. <laughs> 
Um, so it was honestly a little bit surprising to me when people were reacting negatively to Monty and less worried about it now because I've sort of acclimatized to the idea that like people are either going to love him or hate him and the people who love him, love him in the way I do, um, and really understand it. And I think there are people who relate and, and the people who, who find Monty too polarizing. I'm like, this is just, it's just not a book for you. And that's fine. Cause not every book is going to be for every reader. Well, I loved him, and mm-hmm. I don't even see him as being abrasive at all. So, I, I guess don't that either. And so it me. was <laughs> it was frankly shocking to me when people would say that because I was like, "But he's such a love. Like he's he's a little like he's a dumpster fire, but he's such a <laughs> sad dumpster fire." <laughs> I mean, maybe it's because I'm a Slytherin. I like him. I Possibly. Don't know. Um. So. Obviously, you're a history person. You have a degree. You love historical stuff. How is there a way that you tackle historical research? Uh, like, do you have favorite resources? And obviously, you are a little bit anachronistic. When do you make the choice to veer off the historical record to suit your story better? Yeah, I don't remember where it was. Somebody said gleefully anachronistic. Some review did. And I was like, yep, that's exactly what it is. Um <laughs> So in terms of research, I always start, I generally in the past have written about time periods that I don't know anything about. So in spite of having a history degree, my specialization in my undergrad was on um, England during the Wars of Wars of the Roses, um, which is like 1400s. And so I didn't know anything about 1700s Europe going in. Um, and so it's always really, really daunting sort of standing at the start of a time period you don't know anything about. And I have to remind myself with every book, like this is always this daunting and you always feel this dumb at the start and you always get panicked about what you don't know you don't know kind of a thing. Mm -hmm. So I always start with reading other historical fiction set in the time period. Um, And I have to do this before I start writing or else once I start writing, I will get like jealous of other people's skills and also like try and like adopt their voice as I'm writing. So I have to read historical fiction before I start writing. Um, but I think reading other historical fiction set in the time period gives you sort of the human side of it. It's a great sort of easy access point. It doesn't feel quite as scary as going in cold to, um, nonfiction texts. Um, and yeah, it does give you sort of a human side. It gives you, um, details you won't get when you're reading sort of like overviews of the time period. Um, so I always start with historical fiction and then sort of from there move to the sort of broader look at what's going on in the time period. I always read primary sources if I can. Um, I read a ton of, journals and letters home and uh, sort of firsthand accounts from tourists in the 1700s as part of this book, um, which was all like tremendously helpful. And so much of the the details ended up in the book because it wasn't just, um, it wasn't just a look at what the, the places were like at the time. It was a look at what English people were observing specifically as they're abroad um, about the places they're going and what feels foreign to them and what feels um, strange and what they don't like and things like that. Um, so I always do sort of that then and move into nonfiction. Um, And then the biggest thing with historical fiction is you just kind of have to start before you're ready and understand that you don't know everything. You are going to run into things on every page that you're like, oh crap, do they have, like, how do they fasten their their dresses? And do you have window shutters? And um, like, how do, like, what do door latches look like? Like random things like that. And so you just have to sort of be prepared that you're going to be stopping and starting a lot when you write. Um, and then when I revise, I always revise with like the, the Merriam Webster tab open on my computer and you have to check first usage of every word just obsessively, um, which is a pain, (laughs) but that's sort of like what you sign up for. So that's sort of like an overview of my research process in terms of anachronisms. Um, 
I always think of it as if they're like, so all of my books so far too have, have been historical fantasies. Um, the first one is sort of a, a far more fantasy based historical where, where gentleman's guide is more of like a season to taste fantasy element. Um, and so I always try and think of it as like, uh, how do you say it? Um, if, if there are things in the fantasy elements that would conceivably um, adjust real history, then adjust it. But if there's things that wouldn't be adjusted by your fantastical elements, then they need to stay the same. Um, so like there are cyborgs in my first book and that obviously would adjust a lot of things and affect a lot of things about this sort of like alternate 1818, um, Geneva, but it's not going to change the fact that like, okay, was not a word at the time, (laughs) um, or that women weren't wearing pants and like things like that. Mm -hmm. Um, so that's how I try and, I try and think about it in terms of gentleman's guide. I did want it to be a, um, historical novel that reads quite contemporary and that has a lot of crossover with contemporary readers, because I feel like there's this sort of unfair idea about historical fiction that it's, it's really difficult and really isolating and that modern readers can't always relate to it. And people think it's boring for that reason. So I wanted, so I thought a lot about sort of like wanting characters that have, questions and issues and um, struggles that are relatable to modern readers. And then as a result of that, some things sort of um, uh, like adjusted along the way is that I, I wanted them to feel familiar. I wanted them to feel like people you would know, but also people of their time period. So it's a hard line to walk. It's not a, a line that I ever feel like I get better at walking. It's different for every book. So your Twitter often contains threads of bygone badass broads, stories of historical ladies that are so awesome and, best of all, true. <laughs> and a birdie told me that this is going to be a book. Um, Congratulations. Thank you. Will you give us one of these stories? Right now, off the top of my head? Yeah. Oh, my God. I, I, in fairness, I warned you. You did warn me, but I was <laughs> not there. I, like, looked at the questions and was like, yeah, I can totally do this, and then forgot to actually do any prep work for them. Um, well, we can skip it if you No, don't no, no. It. I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it. Can I talk a little bit about the series to get myself warmed up? Yeah, for totally. Um, so the series started um, actually from a lot of the same place that Gentleman's Guide came from, which was a frustration with the fact that a lot of historical narratives, both fiction and nonfiction, are very homogeneously about white, straight, cis men. And especially when I was an undergrad, I got really frustrated by the fact that if I wanted to learn about women in history, I had to take a special class. Or if I wanted to learn about minorities in history, you have to take sort of a specialized class. Whereas when you would do just sort of like the general overviews and then sort of mainstream classes, it would all be about straight white men. And then the idea was um, women and minorities were like so busy being oppressed that they um, didn't have time to make any history. Um, and it was the sort of thing that I was like, in my bones, I know this is wrong. Um, but I sort of like drank the Kool-Aid the whole time I was an undergrad. And I was like, okay, I guess this is just how it is. And then when I started branching out on my own and doing more research on my own, um, found all these stories of, of women, about um, queer people, about people of color in um, sort of modern history that just get ignored. And it was so frustrating to me. And so this is like, this project is my small way of trying to, um, I don't know, trying to paper over that a little bit or do do what I can um, to to bring less mainstream stream narratives to, to more mainstream history. Um, so I'm thrilled people have responded to it super well. Um, oh, yeah. So if I if I tell you a story right now, can we um, can I do one I've already done? Is that okay? Sure. Okay. 
So I wasn't sure if I had to do um, someone. Someone. <laughs> I want you to research a brand new person that you've never thought about before. Hold on, let me pull and up live Wikipedia. on air. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was like trying to think too. I was like, who's in the book that's not in? Um, that's not that I haven't done on Twitter because the the book is like sixty forty old content and then new content. So I was like, is there someone in the book that I haven't? It could even be some because you know what. A lot of people read the Twitter, but a lot of my listeners probably don't. Oh, they that's, don't a good, that's a good point. Um, this might be an introduction. Okay, so I'm just going to do my my like favorite um, sort of go-to woman, which most people have heard me talk about. Um, and in spite of her being my favorite go-to woman, I still haven't totally learned how to pronounce her name, which I really should work on because um, she's French and I don't have a lot of French um, uh, training. So <laughs> um, the only name we actually know her by is Lama Pan, which was her stage name. Um, as a performer in France. And so she was this woman in, in the 1600s, her, her sort of name that she's been come to know, known, she has come to be known by, by history is um, Julie, and this is my French, Davani, I think is how you say her last name. But it's again, it's like, we kind of think this is her name, but we don't totally know. But mostly I call her Julie. Um, so Julie was born in the 1600s in France to a uh, fencing instructor. He like trained page boys for the, the palace or something like that. And so he ended up sort of raising her as a boy and raising her with all these like, boy skills, um, including fencing. And she was a really, really good fencer. Um, she was also a little bit of a, a rebellious tomboy and uh, wanted to uh, get it on with various gentlemen that her father would step in the way of. So she decided that the only person she could um, sleep with without him getting in the way was his boss. Um, and so she like took up with his boss and then he was like, mm, we should probably get you married. And she was not into that. So she ran away from home to become a performing fencing person, per per performing fencer. Wow, that was tough. Um, <laughs> so she like found this other guy and they became this like fencing duo that would travel over, over France, France and do fencing demonstrations. Um, and she was so good with a sword that there was, um, and she would dress up as a boy while she would do it. Um, and there was some, it was called into question that she was actually a woman because she was so good at fencing and that was a traditionally male thing. So one time while she was performing, this guy was like heckling her and being like, oh, you can't really be a woman. You're too good. And so to prove that she actually was a woman, she flashed him her boobs, um, which was like proof. Um, so while they were traveling, she ended up falling in love with this girl in a village they went through. And when the girl's parents found out that her daughter was getting it on with uh, this like lady fencer, um, they sent her to a convent as like, we will nip this lesbianism in the bud. Um, but Julie, being a woman, uh, decided she was going to follow her love to the convent. So she also took the veil. Um, they became nuns together and then ended up, um, she like liberated her lover from this convent. Um, they ended up burning the convent down on their way out the door. And I'm not totally sure why that needed to happen, but it happened. Um, so they like had a tumultuous affair. Julie got bored because she got bored all the time in her life. Um, so then she uh, left her lover to become an opera singer and she was one of the first um, contra altos to perform in France um, slash in Europe at the time. And she was a big star, which is where her stage name Lama Pan comes from. Um, but just like continued to like raise hell all over France and just be this like notorious gambler, dueler, um, sometimes dressed as a lady, sometimes dressed as a man. Um, she eventually got banished from France because she was fighting too many duels and killed too many men in duels. And so she ended up like taking up with the elector of Bavaria and he was not paying her enough attention. So she like stabbed herself on stage to try and get his attention. <laughs> and he was like, we should probably just be friends. Um, and so she just had this like crazy wild life. Um, and she's one of those people that I always bring up as an example of like queer people existed um, in history pre like rent. 
Um, and not only did they exist, like many of them were able to live like out and proud and nobody was persecuting them for that. It's so, I think we, when we study history, we sort of forget the individual lived experience. So when we talk about being queer today, we think of it so much in terms of like, where are you and where are you living and what's your community like and who are your parents and what's your socioeconomic station and, um, different things like that. When we don't think about that in history, we tend to talk about it all in broader terms and say like everybody who was queer was persecuted and everybody who was queer couldn't be anything more than like a tragic subplot in a BBC period drama. Um, (laughs) And so she's one of those great people who disproves that idea because she was so like open about her sexuality and so openly bisexual and people were less upset about the fact that she was um, bisexual and more upset about the fact that like she was making out with all the women they wanted to be making out with. (laughs) So amazing. I'm literally had my mouth open during that. entire. (laughs) I was going to say, as I like started telling that story, I was like, Oh, she's not like the most like, virtuous example she was definitely no, a who wants that? Um, i mean i was gonna say if you were gonna ask me i would have probably said maybe we should talk about ursula nordstrom because this is a children's book I podcast mean, we, could, we could still talk about ursula nordstrom who is like my <laughs> my guiding light in everything i do i love ursula nordstrom so much um, uh, well i'm gonna just make everybody read dear genius that would be a good place to as start. they should i think all the time about um so ursula nordstrom for your listeners who don't know was a children's book editor who really like is responsible for children's books looking the way they do now and also for so many of like the best-selling children's books of all time including um mari sundak's books and she was his editor and she like sort of discovered him and i love mari sundak um and she has uh they they corresponded she corresponded with everybody because of the time period um And they have such beautiful correspondences and I love reading their letters. And she's so like, like tough, but encouraging. And there's some letter he wrote to her right before he started working on wild things where he was like clearly having a rough go and really like feeling creatively stopped. And he says something about like, if I can't write like Tolstoy, what's the point of writing at all? And she Mm -hmm. replies to him and says, you might not be Tolstoy, but Tolstoy wasn't Sendak either. And I try and think about that every time I get sort of like depressed about my own writing and like look at other writers and I'm like, if I can't write like them, what's the point of writing at all? And I always try and think about that. Like everybody has their own unique voice and you might not be like the writers you admire, but you are like yourself um, and your voice is important and unique in its own way. So I think about Ursula all the time. She's one of my my patron saints. Me too. Have you seen her desk in Herper? I have. I have one of my like most treasured photos of myself is a picture sitting at her desk that I, yeah, I just feel like it's like a little shrine there in the Harper office that I need totally. to go pray to every time I go. So, uh, okay. So down back to books. I yes. Guess. Uh, I know that bygone badass broads is going to be a book, but I've seen a couple of other book deals and notes too. Uh, you've got a sequel to gentleman's guide. Yes. Yeah. Semper Augustus. Do you want to give us a little tiny scoop on those? Sure. So the sequel to Gentleman's Guide is called The Lady's Guide to Petticoats and Piracy. Um, It is about, well, it is narrated by slash follows the continuing adventures of Felicity, who is um, Monty's younger sister, um, who is sort of a side character that becomes one of the leading trio in Gentleman's Guide. And I, we just had like so many positive reactions to her that she was always like a character I really liked. Um, but I didn't expect to sort of get the reaction to her that we did, which is we, I'm talking like Gollum, um, we meaning like my, my editor (laughs) and I, um, and so there was such an overwhelmingly positive response to Felicity. Um, and from the start, people were calling for a Felicity book, which made me really happy. And is not something I'd thought about doing, um, until my editor sort of nudged me and was like, so is this something you'd want to write? 
Um, so yeah, it's a, it's a book that is narrated by Felicity, follows her adventures. Um, it's a little bit, I'm still trying to figure out how to talk about it without spoiling the end of Gentleman's Guide. And so I've generally just been saying it's about three very different women, uh, from different corners of Europe at the time who come together to, uh, do piracy and science. Um, so it's a pirate science girl gang, um, with Felicity as the narrator. Um, so hopefully if I can get my act together, that will come out next year. Um, and then, uh, my other book that is coming out is called Semper Augustus. Um, again, it will hopefully come out in 2019. Um, it is set in the 1630s in Holland during the height of the Dutch tulip mania, which is one of those like strange pockets of history that I am so fascinated with and don't understand why everybody doesn't talk about it all the time. Um, so it was this, this like brief period. It's sort of like there was a long buildup to it. And then this very intense sort of peak of it, um, where the, the Dutch had just become an independent nation. Um, Holland had just, the Netherlands had just become an independent nation from Spain. Um, they were sort of like kicking ass at trade all over the world. And so there was like a middle class for the first time ever. People had a disposable income for the first time ever. And they just like, didn't know what to do with it. Um, and so they started buying tulip bulbs and tulips were in spite of being like a national symbol of Holland now, um, tulips were pretty new to the Netherlands at the time. Um, and it was this sort of like flower that represented wealth and decadence because it's, it's totally ornamental. There's no practical application for, for tulips. You can't like eat them or use them as medicine or anything. Um, but people started buying tulips like crazy, um, to the point that this like economic bubble, was created around around tulip bulbs to the point that at the the time the book is set, which is in 1637, um, you could buy a single tulip bulb for the price of a house in Amsterdam. Um, and tulips were bulbs were trading hands like multiple times every day, and there was all this speculation around it. And then virtually overnight, the entire market just collapsed. Um, and it's such an interesting, weird little pocket of history. Um, so the book is set uh, sort of in those like final months of the tulip mania um, and is about a, a pair of siblings who um, are trying to run a con to sell a tulip bulb for much more than it's worth. Last two things. Mm-hmm. First of all, do you have any awesome book to recommend this week? Awesome book to recommend. I actually just finished reading an incredibly awesome book for a blurb that I'm just kind of obsessed with and like want to throw at everybody's faces, but it's not out yet. Um, and that's like one of the perils of being both an author and a bookseller is you often get to read books before they're out. Um, and then it's very difficult because you just want to talk about them and you want to sell them, but they're just not there yet. And I've had like customers come through the store and they ask me for something and I'm like, I have the perfect book for you. Can you come back in six to eight months when it is released? <laughs> um, but so I just finished reading um, Bloodwater Paint by Joy McCullough. Oh no, Bloodwater. Yeah, I think it's Bloodwater Paint. Um I like have it on the floor. Um, I, there's, it's three words and I now can't remember what order they go in. Um, but the author's name is Joy McCullough. It's her debut novel. Um, it is set in the 1600s, I think in Rome. Um, and it's about a real woman. Her name was Artemisia and she was a painter at the time in this sort of like very boys club of Roman art history. Um, it's a true story about her, about her work as a painter. And then also sort of a, um, how do I say this without spoiling it? Um, a, a, a trial that sort of springs up around her. No, um, no. Oh, I read about her and I was like, when will there be a YA oh book about my this? gosh. It is. This is the, this is the book. Not only is this like a book about her, this is the book about her. It's just beautiful. And like, there's so many, I was originally like taking pictures of every line that I loved. And then I was like, I'm going to fill up my entire phone memory <laughs> um, because it's just so beautiful and it's so feminist and really like goes back to this, um, 
sort of idea that I, I think I, I go back to with all historical fiction, which is the idea that like the, the world changes and we talk about different things and we wear different clothes and we have different politics, but really like people don't ever really change. And I love so much about history and historical fiction is when you can look back and see, see yourself and sort of see bridges and, and see things that people are still worried about reflected in history. Um, and that's so much of why I loved this book is so much of it is, is so relatable to a modern reader, but is still really, really rooted in the 1600s. Um, and it's just so like, like you can't miss it kind of feminism, but it's just so like unapologetically feminist, which I just really, really love in a book. This book is so beautiful. I can't wait till it's out. I think it's out in March. Um, and I just really just want to shout at everybody about it. Cause it was so good. Okay. I'm in, I need to read it right now. Um, so now Every week I ask my guests what they are obsessed with this week, but you might have just told me what you're obsessed with. I mean, that was definitely one. I can tell you, does it have to be a bookish obsession? Or- no. Okay. No. And as a matter of fact, I'll start with mine. So this is furthest, not furthest, it is pretty far from being bookish. I am just wrapping up watching the first season of Glow on Netflix. That is oh. a show about the gorgeous ladies of wrestling, which was a show in the 80s. Featuring gorgeous ladies wrestling. Um, And this is a fictional take on how that started. And it's done by the same team that did Orange is the New Black. Here's the thing. I don't love it. Like, I don't like the main character. Which is actually the same problem I have with Orange is the New Black. The (laughs) ensemble side characters are so great. And then the main character is so annoying. So I don't love it, but I'm super into it. Like, I just watched... A documentary about the real glow, which is also called Glow. And it's also on Netflix. (laughs) Yeah. But you can tell because it's like very janky, like 1990s looking typeface. Like it's just not as slick looking. Mm -hmm. So when you're looking through Netflix for Glow, you'll notice (laughs) it's the documentary. But that follows the formation of the original group. So you can see which characters they riffed off for the TV show, how it actually all came together. Anyway, I've never followed wrestling, but now I feel like I might start. Like, Nicole at the bookstore is super into wrestling, and she's telling me all these wrestling facts, and now I'm, like, becoming a wrestling fan. That is what I'm obsessed with this week. Wow. Yeah. That's quite a testament to a show if it can make you a wrestling fan. I know. So the thing I'm obsessed with this week is also a TV show, um, which is, uh, I was kind of worried actually when you started talking that you were going to steal my obsession thing. Um, but it's not thankfully. Um, so my show that I'm obsessed with this week is the bold type. Um, I am not a new TV watcher. I will add, I am the kind of person who watches the same things over and over and over again. I don't, I'm, I'm very like high energy and high anxiety. And so I don't sit still very well. So I don't like new TV because I have to like sit still and devote the entirety of my attention to it. And I have a hard time with that. Um, so when I start a new TV show, it is a momentous occasion. And when I stick with a new TV show, it is an even more momentous occasion. Um, and I started watching The Bold Type this week, uh, which is a show on Freeform. I think it's three or four episodes in now. I started watching it thinking after seeing like billboards for it all over Boston, um, thinking it was just going to be like brain candy. Like I, I really like one of my, I hate the word guilty pleasure. So just one of my, my pleasure movies is Devil Wears Prada. Um, and I thought this was going to be like the same kind of scratch, the same kind of itches Devil Wears Prada, where it's just kind of like, like fashion porn that I just want to like go on a shopping spree after seeing it. And it's all about like, like bitchy backbiting in a fashion magazine. 
And I definitely do want to like redo my whole wardrobe every time I watch it because the (laughs) clothes are spectacular. But what it ended up being instead is this like, again, like very unapologetically feminist show about three women and three like sort of 20 somethings, their relationship with each other, their relationship with their jobs. It's very like frank about sex. It's very sex positive. It talks about like fluid sexuality, like all these things that I feel like get talked about a lot by millennials on the internet. And that is sort of the thing I I am having conversations about and things I hear my peers having conversations about, but don't really get acknowledged in, in media and television. And so the fact that they're talking about things and they're the, the last episode I watched um, had a plot line about like harassment on the internet and women getting like rape threats and death threats on, on the internet because they call things out for being like sexist. And I was like, this is amazing. And this is some of the most like current and relatable TV And that's all centered around the relationships between women. And it's really smart how it subverts a lot of tropes and that there's like a boss character who's played by Melora Hardin, who you think is going to be sort of like the Meryl Streep character that's like the really like mean dragon lady boss and ends up being like a very tough boss, but also someone who is very encouraging to her employees and very encouraging of these young women in their careers and fashion. And so it does that over and over where it takes a trope you think you've seen a hundred times before and it still very much plays into that trope, but also just tips it on its head just slightly. And I love it. I'm so into this show. And I just, I want everybody to watch it because I want it to <laughs> keep going forever. I'm like, so it's like in that, that phase too, where it's like four episodes in. And so I'm so panicked it's going to get canceled. And I'm like, we all have to watch oh. this. We all have to show everyone what we love this show. Uh, well, awesome. I'm in. I'll watch it. So Mackenzie, I need to stop talking to you because we're so over time but this was a joy i was gonna say that's okay i said like um and stuttered so many times that when you cut all of those out it's going to be just the right amount (laughs) you know to be honest i'm probably not gonna cut all those out because that's a lot to cut out that is a lot to cut out yeah (laughs) but uh anyway it was such a pleasure thank you so much for joining me so nice to talk to you i'm so happy to be on Many thanks to Mackenzie Lee for joining me, and thanks too to all you listeners who have been so wonderful and said kind words about the podcast. As a reminder, there is a Patreon. If you give a buck, you get a chance to win books, as well as the opportunity to ask questions of our guests and more. You can find it at patreon.com slash literatycast. Thanks so much for joining me, and uh, see you next time.